nine months before Christmas Day, a holy secret was whispered into the ears of Mary by the lips of an angel. And today, we're going to watch as that whisper grows in her heart and becomes this magnificent masterpiece of a song that Mary has written for the glory of God because she cannot help but keep it in any longer. And so Mary writes a song, and I love to write songs, and I want to tell you, it is very hard work to write a good song, and here Mary writes a masterpiece. What led her to become a songwriter? What led her to write down these, to pen these beautiful words? And the answer is she looked down at her belly and she realized from now on, things are going to be different. Christmas means that God is bringing about an eternal spring. There's a change in the seasons because the winter that we are in in this world is cold and mean because it's a winter without God. And the statement of Christmas is God is saying, I am here And I am here to lift my people up, put them on my shoulders, and carry them out of this cold winter into the eternal spring. And that, my friends, is what Christmas is about. Christmas means whatever is happening in your life right now, the change is coming. No matter how good or bad it is, change is coming. And if, and if you're not seeing that, if you're not seeing the hope, then you've got to start grasping for Christmas. If you're in the middle, middle of difficulties, suffering, pain, and tragedy, what it means is the future has not yet arrived. The promise of Christmas is that there is a bright star that is shining. That one day all things will be made right. And if you're not experiencing that, it's because you're not in the future yet. And if your life is really great right now, it means that the best is yet to come. Mary writes a song, and this is my definition of creativity. So a scholar might poo-poo what I'm about to tell you. But I think creativity, it's an explosion of internal thoughts and internal feelings where you're grasping for goodness and beauty and truth and you think you found something and so out of you pours this creativity. And Mary looked down at her belly with awe and wonder and she realized, I have found something here that is worth writing this beautiful masterpiece that's, that's worthy for me to slave to get all the words just right. And she looks down at her belly with awe and wonder. And she thinks, wow. God really is going to do everything he said he's going to do. He's really going to keep every single one of his promises that he has made to us. The season really is changing. The future is bright. Somebody get me a pen. I got to write this down. And this morning I was praying and as soon as I started, I realized something that hap- that's been happening to me a bit lately is I don't want to pray. I didn't want to go to God. I would rather run. And it, and it made me think of another song. That it's, it's an ancient hymn, you might call it, but it's called Come Thou Fountain. It says, 
my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. And then it says, take my heart, take and seal it, seal it for the courts above. And what this is saying is that in, inside of every single one of us, we're prone to do that very thing. Like, that's why even like right now, you, there's, there's a part of you that's not in like prayer for worship, potentially. And that's because you have a wandering heart. So we, begin, we get stuck here and we realize we're at the mercy of God. And so we say, God, here's my heart. Like, it's yours. And Christmas is, is God saying, I'm here. Hand it over. Give me your heart so I can seal it before you run as far away from me as you can. Just hand it over. That's what Christmas is about. And Mary's discovering this in the song that she writes. We're going to be in Luke 1, verse 46 through 56. Let me read it. And Mary said, or really sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm, and he's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he's exalted those of humble estate, and he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, and Mary remained with her, meaning Elizabeth, her cousin, about three months, and then returned home. First point, Mary's song of faith. Christmas will put your faith to the test. And it's because there is this radical, impossible claim where the story goes... That a virgin conceives and bears a son. And within this virgin who has somehow conceived and this impossible thing has happened, that child will be the son of the living God. That's all. And not like the son of the living God as if like, oh yes, we're all children of God. No, the son of the living God meaning before eternity even began, before our understanding of time began. Past, present, and future, before all of that There was the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. And there he, Christ, God, spoke and authored time. And then, in the form of a child, he was probably born cackling like what's happening back there. (laughs) He entered into the time he created, humbled himself, and bound himself to something that he is the creator of. There's a beautiful thing happening here. There's a few things that I like to ask people to, to see where they, what they really think of Christianity. One of those things is, do you believe the resurrection is a literal rising from the dead or figurative? And this is the mark of a Christian says, I believe this is a, this is a literal rising from the dead. And here's why. So I'll ask people this. 
And, and, and sometimes they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. I say, do you believe that Christ literally rose from the dead? Well, no, I don't think it's a literal resurrection. I, I think he figuratively rose as if to say, like, I have suffered, I have faced immorality, and I've faced against it, and I stayed moral, I stayed good, I stayed true through it all, so I could be an example to everybody. And so his example lives on, was what they might say. And then I say, oh, my friend. Like that. Oh, my friend. You are, you are missing out. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, no, come back to me, come on. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then it means it doesn't matter how you live your life. Because in the end, death wins. And then Christ becomes this impossible example anyway, so he crushes you into the dirt if you're going to try to follow him perfectly. So if the resurrection isn't true, as St. Paul says, we are the most to be pitied. Because we're sacrificing so much, and then in the end, all we do is waste away. And the same thing is true for Christmas, because Christmas means if God didn't really come, then it means we have the kind of God who stands at a distance from us. And he looks on as we are suffering and we are in pain. And we are like these ants that are marching around, working like mad to try to grasp hold of some kind of peace, some kind of joy, some kind of happiness in our life. And it keeps on slipping through our fingers like trying to grasp water. And if Christmas isn't true, he means he does nothing about it but watch from a distance. But that's not the kind of God that we have. He comes to us. And he comes to fight. And another thing people say is, you know, I don't know if I can actually trust that God's word is really God's word. And if you have a hard time believing that, you're going to have a really hard time believing that Christmas could be true. Because if you say there's no way that God could speak through sinful humanity, his own words written down on paper, look... If you don't believe that can happen, you have no hope because now you have a God who does not care, who does nothing to get involved. But what we have at Christmas is the God of all the universe entering into the belly of a sinful woman and being birthed into a world that's full of sin that one day will kill him. And that gives us hope because he says, I'm here anyways. I know what you're going to do to me, and I've still come for you. That's what Christmas is. Mary's song is saying, it all really is true. He has come. He is fighting. And we can look now and say, and he's risen. So I want to do, I want to look at some of the details that have led up to Mary writing the song. Because it's her song of faith. So Mary is visited by the archangel Gabriel who says, within your womb is the Son of the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All that scripture has been saying, there will be one who comes to rescue all the earth. He's the one that's in your belly. And she believes, but she needs some help. She needs some reassurance. So she takes this 70, 80 mile trip to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And before she even walks through the open door, before her little bump in her belly is even showing, as she steps in, her cousin Elizabeth shouts out and prays, blessed is the fruit of your womb. She's in worship. 
Her cousin's in worship. And then in Elizabeth's belly, she has John the Baptist. And John the Baptist starts leaping for joy at the sound of Mary entering into this house. What Mary has just found is a believing community. She's alone in this. Like she's got Joseph, but Joseph is like, yeah, you have the son of the living God in your womb. I'm not really sure how to lead him as a father. I'm not really sure. I like God has all of this favor on you. Like, I don't know how to be a good husband to you. And plus, like, well, people are saying some things like this is all like you've been like unfaithful, Mary. So I'm a little confused of what to do. She needs somebody. And so God gives her the gift of Elizabeth. She walks in and she finds a believing community. And I don't know how people do it when people say, you know what, I don't really need the church. Because they must, they must be way stronger than me. Because when I think of the life that God has called me to live, this life of faith, I think I need the help of my friends to do it. I think we all do. So from this visit from this archangel to then Elizabeth saying, it's true, Mary, all of this is real. I believe and I'm on board. She then looks down at her belly and thinks, he's really going to save us. He's really going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's really going to set the captives free. He's really going to come to the lonely and say, I am your friend and let me teach you now how to be a friend of others. He's really going to come and purchase the forgiveness of our sins. He's going to save us. And he's going to change us into what we were always supposed to be from the beginning. Now I want to do something else. I want to imagine what scripture isn't telling us here, which is maybe a dangerous move. I don't know. But let's just imagine how it might. Let's fill in some of the blanks. What led up to Mary writing this song? After her faith is assured, she says, well, I need a Bible because she's quoting all of Scripture. So my guess is she went to the local temple. She starts knocking on the door of the temple and the priest opens up the door and he looks down and sees this little 13 year old girl, Mary. And she says, please, sir, I need to see the scrolls. I need to see the scriptures. I've got to read them. Please let me do it. And so he says, well, come on in. So she starts pouring over the scriptures, and the priest is watching her with a little bit of awe because he's not seen this before. This woman, this little girl who's pouring over scriptures day and night. And then about a month passes, and she keeps doing this because she's staying with Elizabeth for three months. And then a little bump starts showing on her belly. And the priest kind of raises his eyebrows but lets her keep going. And then Mary's search she comes across Isaiah 53 where there's this talk of this suffering servant who will come and he will die for the sins of the world. He will suffer, die, be buried for the sake of people who are his enemies. And she's reading it. And she thinks, is this what my boy has come to do? Is my son the suffering servant? And as she thinks about it, tears begin to well up in her eyes and they fall down and drop on this expensive scroll. And she says, oh no. And she wipes the tears away off the scroll, worried she's just ruined it. And as she's wiping those tears, she thinks, but this is what he's come to do. He's come to wipe our tears. He's come to get rid of suffering, death, and pain. She said, that is my boy who's gonna do it all. And she can't contain it anymore. She runs back to Elizabeth's house and she grabs a pen and she starts writing. 
And as she writes, she realizes, she writes something. She says, no, that doesn't do justice to who God is and what he's done. And she works and works and works until she has it perfect. And she says, here it is. The, mag- the masterpiece of who God is and what he's come to do. And she says, this is really God's word. So what did she write when she wrote this masterpiece? She wrote of a divine warrior, merciful king, a divine warrior who's also the merciful king. And this is a, not a deadly combination, but a life-giving combination. You think of him like this. He is a giant. And in his hands is a little, spiny, sinful caterpillar. And he has every right to squeeze his fist down upon this caterpillar that's in his hand because he hates sin. The way that God sees sin is the way the mother sees a disease that's taking the life of her child. If she could, she would rip that disease right out of her child, burn it up as much as she can, and then cast that disease down into the depths of the ocean and curse that disease as it falls down into the abyss. And that is just a little tiny bit of how God feels about sin. But destroying sin, destroying the disease of sin without destroying its prey is tricky business. And so you think... You think, is this possible for God to do? And you start asking this, what is possible for God? And Bronson talked about it last week, and I think he mentioned about this saying, can God make a mountain big enough? Can he make a mountain big enough for him to not be able to carry? And the question is a dumb question. Because that's not how mountains work for God. Mountains are made of parts, and God could simply dissolve the mountain and cast it into the sea. No big deal. But there's another question. Can God make a law that he must follow? And the answer is yes. Because if he didn't follow a good law, then it would make him not good. And if he's not good, then he can't be God. And so from a human perspective, this puts God in a tricky predicament. Because if he wants us, he can't have us because we've already broken this law and this command that he says, this is how my people shall live. This is what it's like to live in the heavens. And if you don't live this way and you come in, you will taint heaven so I can't let you in. But he wants you. So what's he going to do? To make a way for you, he dies underneath the weight of the law so you can step out from underneath it and live. He makes a way, a good way, a beautiful way, the only way. He dies, and he doesn't die because he's imperfect or because he's not powerful. He dies because it was your death and he had to take it. And then there, inside of death, He punches a hole through it, and he wins. And that's why it has to be him, because he is the only one that's truly holy, set apart, different. He's the only one that can face death and win on your behalf. He's fighting for you there. 
And he doesn't do all of this because he just wants a challenge, because he wants to show off, because he wants you to see how amazing he is. That's not why he does it. He does it because he loves you. His love is what drove him to the cross. His love is what made him sit under the law and be crushed by it, even though he was a sinless man. He fought for you there. He dies for imperfect people in order to make them perfect. And Mary discovers this truth in the scriptures, so she sings. And what does she sing about? Well, that's the first part. The second part she starts beginning to sing about is a reversal that is to come. It's, it's, it's a little bit strange what, what we're told. is He's scattering, the, his strong arm is scattering the proud and lifting up the humble. For those of low estate, he lifts up and he fills the hungry with good things. He sends the rich away empty and the poor he makes rich. Now, what does this mean? Because... Like, God seems to be contradicting himself a bit. Because if you look in the Old Testament, God continues to bless his people over and over and over again with influence, with power, and with riches. So does God have a problem with those things? And the answer is kind of. It depends how you use them. If you take money, power, and influence and use them for your gain... He breaks you because you're using those things to break others. He wants you to use them as he would. And that's a sign of faith that you would take the gifts that he's given you and use them for him and for his glory, for his purposes in the world. And it becomes a joy for you to do those things. Here's what is true for God's people throughout history. God would bless his people, then an evil tyrant king would raise up and start oppressing his people. And then God would deliver them by overthrowing that king. And that continues on and on and on until Christ comes. And Christ is coming to do away with all kings, all lords that are not his. And what that means is there is a great evil in this world, and he has come here to do battle with that evil. He has come to do away with sin, thereby doing away with all guilt and all shame and all suffering and all death. means you're free, you're alive, and you have a hope for the future. And then Mary tells us how we should respond to this. And it's not what you would expect. The right response to all of that is to fear God. Fear him. That's a weird thing. And, and it's, again, God starts seeming to be contradictory because we know that it says perfect love casts out fear in the Bible. But then in the Old Testament, the primary way, the primary phrase that is used to describe people of faith is fear of God. So what's going on? Well, to fear God is to be in wonder of the God who holds you in the palm of his hands. In Every, everything is expecting him to close his fist upon you. He has every right to do it, and it would be just for him to do it. But instead, he holds his fist open, and he breathes life into you, and he changes you into this beautiful butterfly. 
He's transforming you. It's a metamorphosis. Like, you have been changed. And so he holds his fist open and he whispers grace and mercy into your ear. And when he does, you're changed in an instant. You've become something new, something altogether different. And so you look up at God with awe and wonder and you worship. There's a danger to God. And if you don't see the danger, you don't know who he is. But there's a love to him. And if you don't see the love, you don't know who he is. And if you see both of them, you fear him and love him. And it's a little confusing. But it's good because now you're approaching him the way you ought to be. It's to say, to fear God is to say, as Mary says, I am a humble servant. I would be a dog underneath your table and would take pleasure in being that and serving you however I might. But you have done something wonderful for me, God. You have created life within my womb, but not just life. The son of the living God is in me, God. And I don't know what to do about it, but to say I'm your servant and I will do anything you ask because look at this miracle that you have done in me. And that miracle that happened in Mary is happening in you right now. The whole second half of our verses, it moves from this is what's true of Mary to this is what's true for all of Israel, meaning all of God's people. And if you continue to trace those promises all the way out, you will see that the same thing that happens in Mary happens in you. All through the New Testament, there are three phrases that are repeated over and over and over again. And it's like they're hidden. You probably don't even notice it when you read them. And before I tell you what they are, let me give you some background. So the soul, it's thought to kind of like reside right here in the Bible. It's like this is where your breath is, where your diaphragm is. So singers, when they sing, they'll, they'll take a breath not into their lungs but into their diaphragm because it gives support. Their notes, they're about to belt out some notes. That's where the strength comes from. Well, the soul here, the three phrases in the New Testament Christ is in you, with you, and he works through you. So he's in there, in this place of where the soul is, where the strength, where your breath comes from. And then it's like he's with you, like he's standing beside you, like ready to sing your life song with you. And then he works through you. So like Mary, when you look down at your belly, you know that there's a miracle stirring right there. God dwells within you. And that is why the Christian says, I am a servant of the living God. I am his and he is mine. Here is my heart, Lord, take and seal it. It's yours. Do with it whatever you want. I trust you with it more than I trust myself with my own heart. My, my heart is tricky, and it's deceitful, and I, I don't trust it anymore, so I just want you to have it. So take all of me. I'm yours. The response to this truth is worship. And I'm not talking about just lifting up your hands. I'm talking about your whole entire life. You're like, God, I belong to you. What do you want me to do? You begin to live with the same radical generosity that Christ gave. 
He gave everything for you. You no longer crave power, influence, or money, or finances, or any of these treasures to do with for your own sake. But if he gives you those things, you use them for him and for his glory and for his kingdom. And you say, I don't know if I could live that way. And when you say, I don't know if I could live that way, it's because you're not looking at what he's done for you. And you're not looking in you to see what he's done. Because when that priest was watching Mary and he saw that little bump growing in her belly. And he kind of raised his eyebrow. But then he was watching, like, what is God doing in her? He wasn't doing something in her. He was growing in her. He was in her. And he's in you that same way. And so you'll say, I will love my neighbor with all of my might because he loved me when I was at my worst. I'll love my enemy because he loved me while I was still his enemy. I'll risk for others because he risked for me. I will forgive my friends when they sin against me because I keep sinning against my God and he keeps forgiving me over and over and over again. And even when I think there's nothing left in him to forgive, I come and mercies are new every single morning. So then we begin to live humbly because he lived humbly for us. And he came for us and he said, give me your heart. Let me seal it. And then your life begins to be a song that is displayed for the world to see. And as you sing, you sing about this song that he had for you. You know, Christ has a life song. In the heavens, he heard your cry. And he began to sing out all of the promises that he made before the foundations of the earth. He knew what was going to happen with us. He knew what we were going to do. And he made a promise still, and he created us still because he knew that this was the way to show love. So he sang in the heavens of the promises. And when he began to sing, the doors of heaven unlocked, and they opened up. And he bent heaven down, and he entered into our world. And his song marched him from the manger to the cross. And there's this verse that says, the cross is the joy that is set before him. Now, what does that mean? How can the cross be a joy for him? The cross and his death were not a joy. Do you know what was the joy? He had a vision of what was beyond death. And in his mind, he pictured your very face. And it brought a smile, even as he knew what he was going to face. That was the joy. And so he went to the cross. And he sang for you, he lived for you, he died for you. And the fight started on Christmas and it continues now. And that song on the cross, it started off sorrowful. All the notes and the chords, they were the sad ones. Because those that he came to save sent him to the cross. And when he breathed his last breath, the song stopped. Silence covered the face of the earth. But then, the heavens, the drums of heaven started thundering. 
and the fight song began. And there, inside of death, he heard the fight song of his father calling him to rise. And so he rose up out of death. And as soon as he came up out of death, the song changed. All the beautiful, all the inspiring notes began. And then spring began to bloom all around us because it became resurrection kind of life, a resurrection kind of world. The place where, yes, you will face difficulties. Yes, you will face death. But on the other side of death, there's resurrection. On the other side of pain, there is glory. And so you keep on facing it, knowing the kind of God is the God. The kind of God you have is the kind of God who comes to you on Christmas. But he doesn't leave you there. He breaks through death for you. And as these promises all rang true, the graves opened up. Souls entered their dwelling place in heaven. And the song continues today through you. Because his song is in you and with you, and it is sung through you. So we praise him for all of eternity. Because it's worth praising him for everything he's done. And right now, today, we're waiting There will be another Christmas. There will be another arrival. And until then, we sing. But when that day comes, all of heaven and earth will be joined together as one. And we will sing in unison of the glory and the beauty and the worth of our God who came to us on Christmas Day. So let's praise him for it. Father. Don't let one soul in this room let this truth pass them by. God, I pray we would take the breath of life in, in deep into our lungs, deep into the place where our soul resides, and we would know that you are in us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And that you sing for us still. You sing over us now. And you will not stop. And so because you sing for us, we will sing for you all the days of our life. Help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.